Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast, July 22nd, 2017, episode number 113, Real Time. Hey, my name's Kevin England, and I want to welcome you to the podcast and welcome a new audience. We have Discord checking in tonight. Uh, For my normal listeners who are going to hear this through my typical podcast channel, let me tell you a little bit about this episode, and it's going to sound a smidge different. If you're a regular listener, you heard me talk in a recent episode about a voice and text chat software called Discord. I got hooked up with the team that administers the beekeeping channel and the software, and have been participating in the forums there for a little over a month or two. In our discussions, we put together tonight's activities and have a live question and answer forum. What you're going to hear now is a live show, a little bit different than our typical pattern, but I'm also going to bring some of the basic features that we have in a typical episode. We're going to see if our attempts at advertising have drawn in anybody to participate and ask questions, and I'll do my best to give everybody answers so you might hear live Q&A here tonight. Since it's the first one and since we're being pretty ambitious with technologies, there might be some bumps in the road. We'll play it by ear, and we'll just call it one big experiment. Joining me tonight is my son, Dan, and some of the moderators from the Discord forum, Big John is on, and we expect most to be joining us also. After we're done, there'll be a recording, hopefully, up on YouTube where you can catch up with this if you weren't able to watch it live. So what do we have in store tonight? Let's see. I guess uh, let me start with one other idea here. I have some new listeners or new participants in tonight, so let me just do a quick introduction of myself so you know who's talking and uh, what I, where I come from and what I'm doing. I'm a hobby beekeeper since 2008. I keep bees with my wife and my boys in central New Jersey. My son Dan, who's one of the moderators, he's actually out in Washington, just moved out there recently. I have 15 hives at last count and consider myself a passionate hobbyist. I do have a day job working for a pharmaceutical company. I'm the recent past president of the Northwest New Jersey Beekeepers Association here in central New Jersey. We cover Hunterdon and Warren counties. I maintain their website, keep an eye on things for their Facebook page and YouTube pages. And if you've seen our YouTube We post a lot of videos, how-to, gadgets, things like that. We have a lot of fun, and we're pretty active. And I do, of course, have my podcast, which is www.bkcorner.org. Made a lot of friends through beekeeping and have a lot of people that I keep touch with and do mentoring and other things. So, uh, Yeah, no rest for the weary when it comes to beekeeping. Always a lot of passion for this and having a lot of fun, as always. It's been an interesting year. If you listen to our podcast, you know that one of the first things we always talk about is our local hive report. So what the heck is going on with us? Hmm. (laughs) How do you even talk about the year that we're having it's been a strange year with 15 hives i just can't keep up with it uh, going out all the time feeding the hives 
In New Jersey, it's been a great spring. We've had just a tremendous amount of activity with rain and uh, good plant forage for our bees. They're still very active. going to talk a little bit on that uh, later. With 15 hives, I don't get to go into each one, but I do get to go into some of them directly. And one of the things that I can talk about is one of my hives, pretty aggressive. Not sure why. I went out the other day to feed a nuke. Just standing there at the nuke, looked to the left. All of a sudden, the bees started pouring out. And if I could envision what a Africanized hive looks like, that's what it looked like. They poured out, got all over me. And literally chased me back to the yard. When I got back, I had stings all over my pants. Didn't really get into my um, my skin. You know, I got popped a couple times here and there, but, but not so much, uh, you know, direct stings for me. It, it was one of... Um, it was one of those crazy things where just... All over you, all over your pants, all over your jacket, and I did, I was wearing a suit, so I was really pretty happy about that. Um, lately, I've just taken it to where I've gotten myself in the habit of wearing a suit out there all the time. I don't know why, but the bees seem to have been pissy, so much so that I was wondering if something was attacking them, and I've gotten to the point where... Every time I go out, I'm either wearing a veil, a long sleeve shirt, or a full beekeeping suit. I would be uh, remiss if I didn't want to go out there in a t-shirt and shorts. <laughs> but lately, it's been a little bit difficult because they've just been so aggressive, and I'm not sure why. I have a webcam camera system security at the house, and I took one of the cameras out there and put it in the yard, and I was watching to see if something like a skunk was coming through and getting to this hive, or something picking at the hive. And thus far, the the action-activated cameras have not picked anything up. Every morning, I look to see if uh, something is triggering the cameras and, and messing with the hives, but it doesn't seem to be that way. And, and I'm not exactly sure uh, why these bees are so unhappy. I will tell you that I did an inspection of them looking to see if they were queen right in this particular hive. And, you know, I, I didn't find the queen, and I went through every single frame. And right now, this was a nuke that is growing to be a single box, and soon it's ready for a second box. And uh, I, I just literally went through the hive frame by frame by frame. And, you know, sometimes you could find the queen. I don't usually have a problem, but in this case, I didn't find it. But I did find eggs and larvae, so I know there has to be a queen in there. There were there were two or three frames just full of eggs. So I'm going to go in it tomorrow and take a look and see if I could find the queen again and see. I've been out there a couple more times. They haven't been aggressive, so I don't know if there was something in particular on that day. But uh, not a happy uh, day on that occasion. So one other thing to report. I was in the gateway hive. That's what I call it. It's this really big hive that I have. One of the boxes is painted like a cow. I won it at a contest. And while I was in that hive, I did a mite check 
I pulled the honey supers off that I put on there. We had harvested honey off of that hive, and it was my best producer this year. And while I was taking the honey off, I wanted to do an alcohol wash because it's July, and hopefully everybody's doing their mite checks and checking to see if their bees need to be treated. I checked this hive in the spring, and my alcohol wash count was zero. I checked it again on July 15th, and my alcohol wash count was 60. I was astonished. I've never seen that many mites. I just uh, was shocked to death that that was actually the case. And as you look at the screen, I'm going to put this up on the display here. This is a picture of the mites that came out. And it's an ugly sight. <laughs> you know, I'm used to seeing maybe 10, 15 on a highly infested, but not 60. Never in my hives. This is the highest mite count I've ever seen. So the million-dollar question is, this was last weekend, at the end of the weekend, and I've been working all week, haven't had a chance. So what am I going to do about this hive? I have to treat them. And what I'm doing is just kind of contemplating what my options are. This hive was treated with Apivar late last season, and it overwintered. That's the last treatment it had. And I know a lot of people in New Jersey have been taken to doing treatments in the spring, just knocking the mites down so that when they ramp, they do not uh, overwhelm a hive when they get to this time of year. So if you get those mites early as the bees grow through the season, when you get to this point where the dearth comes and the, the hives should contract a little bit because there's not as much forage, the mites will still be there and they're going to come out of the cells and be on the bees and you'll have an unhealthy population. So a lot of beekeepers in New Jersey and also Bee Informed Partnership is kind of talking about this is doing their treatments early, knocking the mites off so that when you get to this time, your hives are not overwhelmed. Well, I didn't follow that advice because I didn't find any mites in my treatment uh, check. So now, hmm, what am I going to do? The difficulty is, is it's really hot right now. That's really the problem with the world. Different mite treatments require temperature-sensitive applications. So the logical choice for this time of year would be mite away quick strips because that will get the that will get the mites in the cells and it also allows you to do a treatment if you still have your honey on now you heard a second ago i pulled my honey so i don't have a problem with that but mite away quick strips it's too hot when you put that stuff on at at least from my experience of listening to people who've used it if it's too hot not going to work. It's going to gas the hive out. It could kill the brood. It could kill the queen. You're going to take your risk. I'm not saying it's a bad product. I'm just saying you have to apply it within certain thresholds. And being that it was, I think, 89 today, and it's supposed to be in the 90s, in high 80s next week, not going to be an option for me. Another option that I was thinking about was maybe considering Apivar. No, just did Apivar. Don't want to do it twice in a row. Apigard, thymol treatments. Not a bad choice. 
And since I don't have any honey to concern myself, that is an option. I would really like to try exolic acid, but I don't have one of the machines that you use to do that. But I have a neighbor who has one, so maybe I'll talk to him and see what we can do. Anyway, tomorrow is treatment day. Going to figure out something by tomorrow. I have some uh, options in the garage, and uh, I guess when I come back, I'll, I'll tell everybody where we ended up with it. So let me check in here with my podcast buddies and see if there's anything to uh, follow here. I know there were a couple questions submitted ahead of time, so let me go grab one of those. So one of the first ones is, in your opinion, what would qualify as a successful beekeeping? Survival percentage, honey production, year-to-year apiary growth. What are your metrics or metrics do you feel are best for measuring success or failure? Hmm. You know, that's such a personal thing for beekeepers. What's, what means success? When you start out, you simply probably just want honey. Survival, as you get to learn how difficult it is, becomes a, a measure. And, uh, you know, I, I could go off of each one of these metrics, survival, honey production, apiary growth. It's personal. It's different for every person. Some people like to just learn about bees and be a part of the community. Other people, it is strictly about the honey and how much they make and the pounds are what it's worth. What are my metrics? I like to have just enough honey that I don't have to buy honey unless I want to buy honey to try the honey out. I have 15 hives right now. It's too many for me. (laughs) I don't want to lose any hives, but uh, I could tell you that my difficulty is I'm I'm struggling to find the time to do the maintenance of them. I think anybody who looks at number of hives is usually a commercial person, and uh, that's a better metric for them. For hobbyist beekeepers, there's a different uh, different thought process. Is usually it's about honey and overwinter. There is something devastating when you lose a hive, no doubt. And so a lot of beekeepers take pride <clears throat> in uh, overwintering hives and getting them through, especially when they know how hard it is and how important it is to succeed at that. There's one other aspect of beekeeping that uh, others thrive on, and it parlays to my answer of going through the Master Beekeepers program and taking the test in the next week. It has to do with knowing. I've done a lot of hobbies. I've been a EMT firefighter, rescue squad guy, and other things. And sometimes you've been there and done that. But when it comes to beekeeping, every time is different. Everything is new. It's really an interesting an interesting hobby, and it never changes. One of my passions is a bunch of different types of hives. I have um, top bar hives and ware hives and polystyrene hives and looking always at different types of hives, form factors, and management techniques. Really enjoy that aspect of it. So... The question came from Blue Monkey. 
what would qualify as successful beekeeping? When you start out, you have an idea of what you want to do. And what qualifies as success to answer the question is, did you meet your objectives? And I think every year, if you've listened to the podcast or just think amongst yourself that little inner voice, what is it that you want to achieve? What are you doing to achieve it? And how successful have you been? And more importantly, sometimes you have setbacks or don't achieve your objectives. What are you going to do about it? And hopefully you stay engaged, you keep doing beekeeping, and you're able to get through. That's that's the answer to successful beekeeping is if you started out and you enjoy it, hopefully you're going to continue to enjoy it. What's the path to master beekeeper in the U.S.? In the U.K., it's a series of written modules, microscopy, and practical handling apiary management exams with minimum time limits on some of the sections that question comes from Briggsy. so the path to master beekeepers in the united states varies by which program you're in i'll give you a little history before i answer the question the northwest new jersey beekeepers association had a gentleman named jake Mathenius. jake was widely regarded as an amazing beekeeper and person of outreach. And he was part of the Northwest New Jersey Beekeepers Association, which I belong to. Jake was instrumental in getting the Eastern Apiculture Society group up and running. And then he started, wasn't happy with that, started the Western Apiculture Society going. So EAS and WAS have their roots in a person from our club, and um, they have a Master Beekeepers program. That's what I'm going for, the EAS Master Beekeepers. There's other Master Beekeepers put on by colleges and bee organizations, and every one of them varies in what their approach is. I have to say to you, in studying for the Master Beekeepers, I looked at the BBKAs, master beekeeper program i really like their modules i like the way they do their tests and i had contemplated that even from the u.s if i get through master beekeepers for eas i might go take the bbka why not i'm doing all the work so the way that the eas test works is that you would You go to Eastern Apiculture Society Conference. It's a week-long conference. This year it's running in Newark, Delaware. And from that, you take four tests. You have to apply. And the first part of applying is you fill out this pretty rigorous application, and you have to have a sponsor. I don't think they're going to take any normal beekeeper off the street uh, they really want to have a sense of who's going to represent EAS as a master beekeeper. When you're there, you have four tests to take. One of them is a written exam. One of them is the practical application of hives. You go out in a yard where they have a number of hives. Some are normal operations. Some of them are set up with problems. And they literally have you smoke the hive and go in and tell what you see. 
The third part of the examination process is a practical lab. You go in and you meet with other master beekeepers and they ask you questions based on things they have set up. They might ask you, hand you a snow grove board and say, explain this and how does it work? How does a De Marie uh, process work? How do you do splits? How do you put honey together to go into a contest? What's the temperature that wax melts, that wax discolors, that wax catches fire? All of those things are kind of on the table. You don't know what they're going to ask you. So it's a written exam. It's a in the apiary exam, and it's a laboratory session where you go in and you meet. The last part is a verbal presentation. You're given a topic, you're given a certain amount of time, and you have to give a presentation out loud on the topic. And the way that it's set up is you have a certain amount of time to speak on the topic, and then you have to answer questions from the audience. After all of that's done, I guess they do the assessment and they come back and they give you the ring the bell or, or wah wah thing. And from my understanding, it's going to be, um, it's a challenge for anybody to get through all four at one time. And if you don't pass all four, you can come back and take it over again. Or if you pass two, you can take the other two. For me personally, it's not that I don't take this seriously. I've had some pretty significant things going on and I waited till the absolute last minute before I made my final decision as to whether I was going to test this year. As a matter of practicality, the next two EASs are within driving distance for me and I figure I'm going to take this at Newark. Newark, not Newark. Newark is in New Jersey. Newark is in Delaware. And I'm going to then if I don't make it through for all four, go to Virginia the next year. So I'm committed to the next two EAS conferences to get my master beekeepers. I'm really, really hoping that I can get through, but you know, you never know with these things. You just don't. So we'll see what happens. To that end, let me show you something real quick. If you're watching the video feed, I'll see if I can um, just do a quick preview. Here's my notes. <laughs> <laughs> it's a crazy little thing that I put together. This is what I've been studying, and I, I've tried to prioritize and pick different things that I thought they would ask or that I really needed to know. And being the type A person that I am, I'm always the person that wants to look at more detail than I will ever need. Ask me about the circulatory system, and I will tell you anything you need to know about every single little... What's an ostia? It's a slit that's in the dorsal valve. There's five of them. They allow the hemolift to come in. They close when it's being pumped. I mean, I've studied to that detail. As you see from my notes, what are brood diseases? And I have all of the diseases, whether they're bacteria, fungal, viral, all the pests... And then I literally went through the bacteria diseases, American foul brood. Almost like I'm writing a book. I have all the crib notes for everything all the way down. And then I did different uh, treatment options, hive operations, how to do splits, management of swarm techniques, and a full anatomy, the head and its appendages, 
everything about the skull, everything about the internal organs of the head. I'm not sure how well this shows up on here, but uh, I, I went to specific detail with pictures and and other things. Um, ask me, I know. It's more than I need. It's more than I need, and it's probably paralyzing me to study at this level of detail. But I'm learning it because I want to learn even more what it's about. So lately what I've been doing is I went and studied the couple areas that were most concerning to me that I really didn't know that much about, specifically anatomy and physiology, and I really wanted to know the difference in the brood diseases and things like that. But now I'm starting to study some of the esoteric things, things that they could ask you anything about products of the hive, uh, things about beekeeping equipment and other things, how much does it cost and what does it take to get started and things like that. So a lot of different things run through my head about what I think people are going to ask me for. So, yeah. And I've found a lot of incredible resources out, but then I've also found that there are certain things like the circulatory system that are just not available out there. Really aggravated at the fact that I had to dig so hard to find things on this. Yeah, pretty fascinating, uh, pretty fascinating thing to be involved in. So let me just check in here with uh, John and Dan. And see if they have anything for me. I mean, I, I think, I mean, I, I think people are pretty impressed with your notes. We got a couple of comments about that. We have a couple posts on Reddit. If you guys have any questions that you want answered in text and not on the live stream alone, uh, go ahead and post to our Reddit AMA, and and we'll answer it there. Um, just in case Kevin doesn't get to it on the stream. He, uh, that was my son, Daniel, talking, in case you didn't catch it. Danny, is there any, um, any questions that have come in that I am missing? So I got uh, two came on Reddit. Um, one was, I just found a bee with a busted wing. Is there anything I can do to help it? I'll put it in a flower for now, hoping that she'll eat something. Um, and then a follow-up that it looks like her wing is torn in half. Okay, so let's let's go so ahead and answer that. On that. There's really not much you could do. Bees have a certain lifespan. They get to the end of their lifespan. If you've taken any photos sometimes of bees on plants, especially this time of year, you're going to see their wings are really tattered. The only thing I could say is just put them on a plant and make them happy for the rest of their being. But uh, take solace that there's probably thirty to 35,000 other of their sisters and brothers taking up the charge and... Uh, yeah, give him give him a happy life. You know, Dan. A lot of times, how many times have we seen the bees in the pool, and they're they've got no hair, they're totally worn out, but we still scoop them out and let them walk around. Yeah, and I will also add on to that that sometimes you'll find a bee that's struggling a little bit, and you just give her a little bit of water, or maybe some some honey or sugar if you're near the kitchen, and sometimes she'll perk right up and fly home. Got another question for me? Yeah, so uh, inevitably this question always comes up. Um, so do not care on Reddit asks, what's the best way to prevent uh, CCS or colony collapse disorder? Yeah, colony collapse disorder. It's one of those things that uh, has become very nebulous, and it just basically means the plight of the bees. 
they really thought that they were going to find some specific smoking gun or a particular problem that was to blame. But what they're finding is, I'm going to paraphrase this, so many pressures on the bee that it finally became the proverbial last straw. Uh, specifically with Varroa mite, there are pesticide pressures, there are habitat pressures and other things going on. And what can you do and what should America do? I think America should look a little closer at protecting pollinators in general and supporting pollinator programs. I think they could change some of the farming practices and I think people should use Roundup properly, plant pollinator gardens. And basically, one of the things we know about bees in general is that better nutrition, better food, better habitat is better for bees. Their immunity system seems to be somewhat linked to their ability to uh, be taken care of, less stress and more resources, so um, even a local person, single individual, can make an impact by planting a tree that bees will feed off of or mowing their grass a little bit later or stop using uh, different pesticides and especially not using them correctly. So it sounds a little tree hugger, but it really does make a difference. And from colony collapse, one other thing that I would say is the government should support the research to uh, continue to improve pollinator health and things like that. All right, I got one more that just came in uh, a couple minutes ago. So Glowy660 on Reddit says, I've been wanting to do beekeeping and putting the time and effort to start a colony. What are things you wish someone had told you when you first started? Yeah, we get this question all the time when beekeepers are trying to start. To that end, and this is not a self-plug, but just a, an answer that, that solves a problem for people that I encounter all the time. On my website, bkcorner.org, you'll find on the homepage a link to the Getting Started in Beekeeping Guide. And I think what would be great for anybody is you're not going to find a mentor very easily. But if you could find somebody who would give you all that great advice, um, that's really important. And, you know, the biggest thing you always hear people is do your homework. Get involved with other beekeepers. Go and listen to what happens. Pay attention to podcasts like this. Start with two hives. Don't get esoteric. Meaning, don't get crazy. There's some crazy things that people do when they're getting started. I'll give an example of what I'm talking about. Typical conventional hive is 10 frames in a Langstroth box, two boxes to start, which is conventional, and they have foundation in them. There's different notions out there in the world to start beekeeping and be very natural and this and that, which I don't disagree with. But the common wisdom is start conventional. If you try to go foundationless, one, the bees may not build out comb, and two, they may build it out all over the place, which makes a mess for a common beekeeper who's just starting that they can't handle. And that becomes a difficulty in the context of uh, getting started. And why make it hard for yourself? 
you know, I hate to say this, but beekeeping's hard enough as it is. So, you know, uh, follow conventional wisdom for a period of time. Listen to your state agencies, and and by that I mean beekeepers associations and and uh, master beekeepers and people in the know. And then once you get your sense about you, you can deviate and try different things. I'm not saying don't start with the top bar hive. But if you do start with the top bar hive, know that it's going to be harder because nobody runs them. I was on a phone call with a gentleman this week. He posted something to our Facebook page. He's got a top bar hive. He started out. He read all the books. He's got the hive running. He's got it about halfway filled. He's doing really well with it. But he reached that crescendo where he wasn't sure whether it was right or not. And he just needed somebody in the know to give him a hand. So I talked to him this week during lunchtime, and I went over his game plan and where his hive is and what his hive is doing, and he's he's in good shape, which is great. Now, I know other people that I've always talked to with a top bar hive, they, they don't always end up that way. And, uh, you know, he had a couple of picadillos, but for the most part, he can overcome them. So if he had started with a more conventional beekeeping approach, he might have had it a little bit easier. Fortunately for him, he's on a good path. So I'm going to just look here. Um, yeah, Gary Fawcett asked a question. 60 mites in your mite count. Is that 60 with 300 bees? So before I answer Gary's question, hold on a minute. Gary's a ringer. <laughs> He's a fellow podcaster. KiwiMana.co.nz. He's from New Zealand. Good friend of mine. He and Margaret do the Kiwi Wanna Buzz. And uh, I'm not surprised that he's peeking in here. We haven't connected in a while. He says, get an ox acid vapor, vaporizer. Yeah, you're right, Gary. I need one of those. And I had reached out to you probably earlier this year. So 300 bees, half cup. Yes, that's what it was. A typical convention for doing an alcohol wash is a half cup of bees, and then you divide it by three. Um, if you've listened to the podcast, you know, recently we tried a Swienti device. I had that and I was going to consider it for this test that I was doing. Uh, but you have to use a scale to make sure you measure the bees correctly. And I didn't want to get into that level of fuss out in the bee yard this round. So, um, yeah, that, that hive is a little scary. That's one of my best producers. It's been going for quite a while, and I'm a little bit nervous that it will implode. But uh, the good news is, and you have to listen, you have to listen. It's July. You have to treat the bees now if you're going to treat. You can't wait till August, and you certainly can't wait till September. We preach this every year. They have to come into the strength of fall with strong bees and build enough bees to overwinter. And if they got varroa mite hanging off of them, they got, think about that, 300 bees, 60 mites. How many of them had mites on them, right? So these bees are sick. They're walking dead. This hive is dead and it doesn't know it. Now's the time when these summer bees are going to die eventually. That's what happens to summer bees. And they start to get replaced that the new bees coming out need to be healthy. So 
it's really important that you do your mite checks now. I've always had the problem last year for work. I went to, let me think about how that went. I was in Italy, and then I came home and went to, no, I was in India. I flew to Seattle, then came home and was in India, and then we went on a personal vacation out. So I was gone all July last year and didn't treat, and I think that really hurt me. So this year I'm happy to be home and taking care of that. So I'll just check in again with you, Dan. Anything else coming through? I don't have anything else on Reddit. Everything else I've posted into the uh, podcast questions. So there's a couple floating around in there that I don't think you've gotten to yet. Yeah, I see one that just came through. It says our hives have quite a bit uncapped honey. We're in south-central Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania, and we're having a very wet year. This is our third year. Last year we had four hives, and they all swarmed. So this year we made sure that we had lots of supers on. Do you have any thoughts or comments? It has been a wet year this year in the Northeast, which is both good and bad. It keeps the plants plump. That's my word. It keeps them uh, moist, and I think the forage lasts a little bit longer. There's been years when we get to July 1st and everything is bone dry. I noticed in my yard the little creek, as we call it, is not running anymore unless it rains hard. And the big creek is down to a trickle. And by this time of year, sometimes the big creek stops and it becomes the big puddle at the end of the pipe. It's still running, which means things are wet. I still see some forage out there. And this year I've seen some plants really large that I've not seen uh, this big, which is amazing. I love it. Let Let me show a picture on the screen. I pulled this up today. Okay, so what you're looking at here is a butterfly bush. has nothing to do with what I'm going to talk about, but I took this today. I thought this was really cool. That's a hummingbird moth with its proboscis out going down into what what I would say is a half-inch flower. And uh, I took probably 100 pictures of this thing. I love to go out and take pictures of different pollinators all year long. I, I, whenever I see bees flitting around something, I go out and I, I got this one today. And this is the one I wanted to show. This is a bumblebee on mountain mint or what they call catnip. I don't know if they're the same thing. I probably said that wrong. The point of where I was going to tie it back into what I was discussing is this plant this year is eyeball high. I've never seen catnip grow as big as this is. This plant uh, is in our garden, and it was just this little bush last year, about the size of a a small potted plant. It's taken over in a complete bed. It's eyeball high, and it's huge. And if you look at this plant today, there were probably 100 pollinators, and that's not an exaggeration on this plant. And I'm having to think that... uh, it has to do with this year's water and the, the frequent, the, the plants are just doing spectacular. Honeybees, bumblebees, flies, uh, all kinds of things. These little white moths, my lovely wife Sharon told me what they were, I don't remember. Um, 
I bet I got eight or nine different pollinators out there on this plant. So just amazing. What I have to do is figure out how to pull this plant out of here and put it over along the hedgerows alongside where my bees are. So let me come back to the question. Uncapped honey. What do you do with that? Actually, it was one of the things I wanted to talk about here tonight. We recently harvested our honey, and we also had the state apiarist, Tim Schuler in. Tim talked about how you harvest honey, and you obviously want to harvest capped honey. But every once in a while, if you get a frame that has partially uncapped honey, it's okay to throw that in the extractor as long as the majority of what you're extracting is capped and you've uncapped it, the moisture content will blend itself out and and even itself out is probably a better word. One of the things that you want to consider about that is you could buy the device and measure the moisture content. Um, if in doubt, just leave that stuff for the bees. They'll cap it and maybe you'll get it in the fall or they'll eat it later. So good that you have a lot of supers on. Hopefully you controlled your swarming, Briar Valley apiaries. And uh, I think we're past that hurdle based on the New Jersey Swarm Report data that we always get every year. Uh, This is, you know, it's not unusual every once in a while to see some swarms this time of year. But on Facebook, you typically see people posting, hey, I got a swarm, I saw a swarm. It seems to have settled down for 2016, so I think we're over that. Big Ryan B. asks, any chance you're going to make your notes available to other aspiring master beaks? Yeah, sure. My notes are really scrubby, and I have a habit of making my notes available for all kinds of things. When I did my project management PMP certification, when I did my Novell certifications back in the day, I'm somewhat renowned for different notes that I take. And, uh, yeah, that's not out of the question. I I think one of the things, actually, I was thinking about for my notes was, I think about a guy like Michael Bush. He probably wrote notes like what I have. They're reference notes on any topic. And then from that, you go and pull out a topic and you write a presentation or you give a talk and you build a narrative that tells the story that gets the information out. Because if I sat and talked about the dorsal valve and the ostea and the way the aorta works and that the, you know, the antenna heart, people wouldn't get it. But if you tell the story of how the circulatory system works and, and give visual references and anecdotes, then people follow that. And I know for the podcast that one of the things I was thinking about is I've touched on so many different topics. Maybe my plan is... I can go through and organize all my notes and then have a body of work. Yes, I've talked to this or no, I didn't. In fact, what's interesting, let me see if I have that in my notes. In in one of my recent episodes, I did the life cycle of a bee. And I think that's something that's going to be on the test. And so I pulled those notes out of my podcast episode that I did where I talked about that and I put it in my notes but I cleared it out I made it more note like not 
delivery for the podcast. So, yeah, sure, Ryan. I'll, I'll see what I could do about posting these out. I, I'm going to give everybody a really good tip, which is the Master Beekeepers uh, exam for BBKA, BBKA. Somewhere along the line, and I, I'll have to look for the notes, I found um, where they have study guides for each of the modules. And I've actually been able to pull some of the data out and put it in mine. Uh, Danny, anything else come through? Just check with you. Um, yeah, so um, yeah, so there was one that came through back when you were talking about doing your treatments. Uh, can southern states treat a little bit later? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a guy from New Jersey, so I'm not sure how much you want to... Uh, heed my advice but yeah i think you can it depends you know how far south when i talk to people who are in virginia when i talk to people who are in north carolina and i have listeners all over the world their beekeeping season is not that distant from ours they may have a couple more weeks for us we typically get to about halloween and between halloween and thanksgiving is when we button things up if we don't get one of those years that stays warm into December, like we did last year, then we're going to be done. But people in the south, maybe they have another week or two so they could treat a little bit later. Their bigger problem is their hives are operational longer. And as hives start to collapse towards that time of season, bees are out opportunistically foraging and they get into bad stuff you know if you have a hive that's declining and they're in there and they're picking up the mite load and bringing it back home that's a bad deal i i think your best bet is to check with your local resources but uh i i do know that some of the the people from the south they they trail us by a week they also in the springtime advance us by a week or two but that's about it uh, friends that I have in Virginia and Maryland, they're, they're only a week ahead of us when their brood cycles start to, to break and things like that. So I would imagine it's not that much difference. I'm going to go back and look and see if there's... Um, there was one other question. Yeah, Jay Case, can I get advice on getting my association more into it in depth-wise, and he had a couple things. Basically what he's saying is there's a lot of key people in his area, and maybe they don't participate at the level that they should, or they don't, uh, you know, they have lives and, and they just can't participate. You know, it takes a certain type of person to be out on the beat to go to meetings. I got a call today. They asked me to come and speak to one of our local associations here in New Jersey for fall management. It's on the day before I'm leaving. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> that's tough. That's tough to go speak on a night before you're going to catch a plane the next day. So what do you do about that? Uh, these people have day jobs and they have families and they donate enough time to do certain things in research and then they're being asked to participate at the local level. We have a big problem in our world for mentoring. If you have 160 members and you have probably 8 or 10 of them that are qualified to mentor others, 
then how do you find people to mentor everybody? For us, what we try to do is mentoring yards, and then we help by phone and by, um, you know, email and support that way. And every once in a while, when we find the chance, we go out. I probably go out about a dozen times a year to different beekeepers and help them out. But what do you do? I, I mean, I, I, you know, I get to a July weekend and I can hardly get out to my own bees. How can you go help somebody else out? There was a meeting last night at the Raritan Valley Beekeepers Association or Thursday night. I really wanted to go, but I was at work until 6.37. By the time I got home, I, I couldn't make it. So sometimes there's just practical matters that these people can't participate. What you want to do is plan events. That's my answer, J.K.'s. Seek these people out. Give them plenty of time to participate let them do it on their own terms. Take whatever you can get from them and plan one special event. If you have enough people, I don't know how many interactions your association has, but if you have seven or eight of them across the year and you can pick out two or three people and have them plan something for later this year, somebody of stature or somebody who's busy or somebody who's you know, not around that much, they can plan something at a specific time. That would be my recommendation. If somebody wants part of my time, if they give me enough notice, of course I can work it out for them, and I'd be happy to. It's one of those things, right? Um, when it comes to training new people and noobs, as it's called, well, there's a lot of resources out there. I think one of the best things that the intermediate beekeepers can do is just keep providing those new people with resources that are trusted. And one of the things that I did at the EAS conference last year when I spoke was provided where do I go for my information? What, where do I look? It was a neat presentation, and it was unusual. I got asked to, to speak on that topic by Tim Schuller. And I really had to scratch my head at putting that one together. But there are certain resources that I found that have found to be accurate and true because I have the practical experience to say, yes, they were right. George Emery and the Emery Pink Pages is just one example. If you look those up, you'll find them. David Cushman, he has this really crude site. God bless the guy. When he was here, he's not with us any longer, but his notes are imme immense on almost any topic, and they're great. There's Honeybee Sweet, Rusty, uh, I think her last name is Berlou, hopefully I pronounced that right. She just has something on almost every topic. I mean, I, I know a couple of these resources that when I'm interested, I go look. And sometimes people come to me, hopefully, and look things up. And I'm, I'm doing my part to contribute. So my answer to that is uh, help them at the intermediate level by pointing them at good resources. Do a lot of hands-on with them. That's important. And try to work with the people in the know and schedule their time. And I bet you can get good resources from that. i just circle back with you again, Dan, so I, I can see if there's anything else. Um, so you got one more question that just came in from Big Ryan B. 
Can you comment on the generation gap between our classic beekeepers that have been doing this for 50 years and the modern generation of beekeepers getting started or have only been around for five to ten years? Interested in the social dynamics of transferring the knowledge of seasoned beekeepers? And I think you kind of talked about this a little bit, but... Yeah, this is an example live, real time. I mean, think about what we're doing. We're podcasting to, to Twitch. The older generation has no idea what that is. Twitch.tv. I have an Xbox. I happen to be a fairly modern person for an old guy and uh, can connect with the younger generation. I think what we have to do is respect our older beekeepers for they have incredible wisdom, but we have to change our practices and we have to understand um, how new people absorb information, where they go for it, how they want to receive it. I know one of the things that you see is um, the whole world is a soundbite these days. Nobody wants to do the math. I, I believe, as you see from my notes, the devil's in the detail. And at some point, you got to pay the piper and learn the information. But if the soundbite is proper enough, then you can get by. And one of the things you'll learn about bees are whether you do beekeeping by method A or method B, typically the bees get through. So you don't have to fuss that much over it. That's the good news for us. I think uh, reaching the newer generation is a matter of being where they are. They're not on Facebook. <laughs> They're on social media. And people are very socially aware in these days, the younger generation. They're connected to their food. They're connected to the land. They're connected to the environment. That's a lot of the things that you'll see from younger people coming in. It's not that the, us older people, I call myself old, <laughs> are not into this. But however, you know, we have, to, we have to embrace that. I love seeing younger people come into our meetings. I gravitate to them. I think things like embracing video presentation. And I think modern, clean UI, user interface, user experience. When we send our messaging out for our club, we switched from basic old type and email to constant contact. And we try to have a nice, modern, clean design when we send our messages out. So uh, just, just check with you one more time, Dan, and then I want to hit a couple topics that I had prepped. Yeah, LKB on YouTube says broodminder, ga broodminder gadgets, apps that you can use to scan your frames and locate your queen. Gadgets and electronics will hopefully get the younger generations interested. And <laughs> Kiwi Kiwi Mana on Discord just commented, uh, we had to use stop using stone tablets because of complaints <laughs> about the weight. Yeah. That's Gary's sense of humor, that's for sure. All right, so actually I wanted to talk about a couple things. Um, we harvested honey here at the house. And recently um, at, at Tim Schuler's talk, they were talking about the different methods. And what was interesting to me was uh, Sharon, my wife, and I were looking at 
ways to make the process easier. We did it in the garage. It was 90 degrees in there. And I took some notes and wanted to show this deluxe uncapping tub kit. One of the things that really became a problem, well, two things. The first one, and I'll, I'll go to that first because it's the start of the process, uncapping the honey. I think I could have talked about this. I tried the heat gun method, which was really, really cool. It melted the capping wax, and what it does is it makes the capping wax draw back, and it sits on top of the ribs that make up the honeycomb, but it allows the honey to come out. I would recommend it. What I'm talking about is a, a paint stripper style heat gun that you can buy. They're not very expensive, and there's billions of uses for them, so they're not unitaskers. If you happen to have one, maybe you want to try it. But the other thing that I wanted to talk about was the uncapping knife that we used that had a thermostat in it. If you have an uncapping knife and you're having problems with it, one of the things they said to do was take the uncapping knife, the heated one, and plunge it into the wax and it'll cool it off. I thought that was a very interesting idea. And I was dialing the little dial on one of the three that we have and adjusted the temperature back so that the wax on the thing was not sizzling. So we got the uncapping part kind of cleaned up. But the bigger problem was all the pots that we used. We were taking every frame out and draining them all into pots. And then taking the pots and draining them through strainers into another pot. Which we then ladled out into a jar through a funnel. No. No, no, no. We're not going to do this anymore. We're talking about buying, and I'm sorry, this picture is a little bit small. And for those of you who are listening audio-wise, you can't see it. But this is a deluxe uncapping tub kit. It's a tub that sits over top of a container. It has a wooden bar across it with a, a nail or a protrusion that you could set the hive on, and you cut the cappings off. And it just drains like almost like a crush and strain style through the stopcock into a bucket, which also has a stopcock, which then drains through the filter right into the jar. So I remember going to Tim Schuler's honey house and seeing his operation. When they pull the handle, everything's already pre-filtered, and they drop it right in the jar. And as soon as the jar is full, they just slide the handle up and cap the jar and put it to the side. So that's cool. That's the way you want to do it. So in looking at uh, in looking at where did I see this somewhere in my notes I came across a picture oh it's in the book I'm reading right now which is Dewey Karen's Honey Bee Biology and Beekeeping one of the recommended ones for uh, studying for EAS there was a picture there of the rig that they set up and I'm I'm leafing through it as we sit. There's a tank, similar to the one that I have on the video, that goes into a pail with a gate, and they take that and strain it right into a settling tank with a gate that has a bottling table underneath it. And of course, after you uncap the frames, you put it into a hand-cranked extractor or a motorized extractor, and that goes into a double sieve, which goes into the bucket that you put into the bottling table. And Yeah, so look, it's an operation, and it's the right way to do it. Next year, this is something I'm going to invest in, because 
every year what happens, and even this year, we had I, uh, probably 15 pots in the kitchen. What a mess. Terrible, terrible, terrible mess. So, yeah, kind of look into this. Although $137 for this uncapping tub, that's quite a bit of hit. I don't know if I'm happy about that. The the other topic that I wanted to bring up was this. I don't know, can I show a video? Yeah. All about pollen, bee pollen or bee bread and how to harvest it on your own. I thought this was really cool because the other day I cut up a frame, as I had talked about on the podcast, to put into the Waré hive. And the excess parts that I had had pollen in them. And I thought, you know, it's such a shame. I can't put it back in the hive. What can I do to to do something with this? And if you look here, what they did, and I bet it's labor-intensive, but it's an interesting idea. They cut the pollen into strips. They literally took a knife and cut it apart. And what I'm talking about is they cut comb that had packed pollen all the way through and then they literally cut it through the center of the cell and just used a knife and popped all the little modulars out and that way they didn't get the wax and at the end of the day they ended up with all these little pellets of pollen now what you do with this i don't know you know there's two ways to collect pollen that i know the first one is you put a pollen basket at the front of your hive, and every time the bees go through, they scrape some pollen off that was going in into a, a little chamber which you harvest. I've seen that pollen for sale. This is different. This is bee bread. It's stuff that's been processed with enzymes and so on from the bee and packed into the cell. What they do with this probably is freeze it, grind it, and put it in smoothies and shakes and things like that. It's got to be very nutritious for you. And to me, this was a common sense way of getting these little pollen modules. I thought this was really, really cool. And so I actually had a frame the other day with this. And then when I went outside, it rained and it wrecked it. And I'll have to do it some other time. And I don't have time to do it right now. But I thought this article was really cool. The web address is sweetbeegarden.com slash bee dash pollen and i'll have a link to this in the show notes so neat neat process that this person put together uh since gary's here let's talk about something i found uh i think in his forum you'll have to keep me honest gary from kiwi mana homemade protein supplement recipe i didn't really want to talk about this other than i found it and someday I always dreamed of making my own pollen patties, and here's a recipe. Now, this makes 150 pounds. I don't think I need 10 pounds of pollen for my 15 hives. So I'll probably go to the one-pound recipe version and make enough for myself to uh, put on my hives this year. Although, when I go to beekeeping meetings and I see pollen patties for sale, they're ridiculously cheap. So I would only do this just to have the experience of doing it, not because I I can't buy it. You know, one of the things about beekeeping, I'll give you a hint if you're looking at a newbie. Um, why build your frames if 
for the cost of buying your frames for a dollar more you can have them assembled do you know how long it takes to nail the frames now I will caution you that when the frames come pre-assembled sometimes they don't put that side nail put one nail and the frame is done that's the beauty of it my time is worth far too much money so that's a trick that I've used so if I can buy bee pollen patties for a nominal cost I'm gonna do that no doubt last one I wanted to talk about and I actually wrote myself a note you can see it on the screen if you're looking tell the story about Sharon being stung <laughs> so one of the things that that uh, goes on in the world is when I'm at work and I'd like to get my hives fed I asked my dear lovely wife who's a beekeeper she actually got me started in this by the way she went and took the classes to feed the hives and such was the case this Tuesday I think or Wednesday uh, I asked Sharon to go out and uh, feed the waré hive and she went out there she had a bee suit on but she was wearing shorts and she there's a uh, Boardman feeder which is the mason jar feeder turned upside down in a little container and I explained to her pull it up slide it off uncap it pour the liquid in put it back in and just put it right back down well I guess in my mind, I explained it to her. <laughs> I didn't say that to her. So when she went, she slid the whole thing out. Well, when she slid it out, she interrupted the guard bees, and they came and chased her, and she got stung twice on the legs. She went screaming through the yard. Blah. She did eventually put the feeder back and feed the bees, but no more. She didn't want to do that anymore. So I had the conversation with her, and, and this is the point I wanted to relay. Finesse. It's a funny thing what beekeeping teaches you after a while. I know when I go to feed that, I go up, I pull the, the feeder out. I'm going to do it on the camera here if you're watching. Pull the feeder out. I slide the lid off to get any of the bees that are on there. And then I walk away from the hive and I uncap it, pour the liquid in, turn it in. And when I come back, I turn the feeder over and I let it drip down in the bottom and all the bees go on that, and then I set the feeder jar right back in. Now, duh. Sharon said something to me the other day that never dawned on me, so you always can learn. Why not bring a full jar and just swap the one out for the other? Oh, <laughs> so stupid, so obvious. I don't even know if I have a second jar available right now, but either way, just the fact that she pulled the feeder out and open the entrance and disturb the, the guards resulted in a different outcome. So this is why I implore you to find other beekeepers. When you have a bad experience, tell the other beekeeper. Hear how they do it. It's so important when you get to network with people. And it's the one thing in the eight years or however many years I've been doing this, almost eight years, um, I've learned how to do certain things. Still get stung more than anybody I know. Tim Schuler was on the phone with him last week about a question I had, and he relayed a story to me. I'm, a, I'm in a Kevin moment here. He said Bob Hughes gets stung far more than he did, and he never knew what it was about Bob. Yeah, he's a little rougher with the bees sometimes. 
But there are certain things that bees just don't like about people. And if you're one of those people, you will get stung. And the current Northwest New Jersey Beekeepers Association president said to me one time, you get stung more than anybody I know. And he's right. If I'm standing in a field of 20 people, I'm the one that will get stung. Maybe it's odor. I don't know. Maybe it's uh, my breath. Maybe it's the deodorant I use or the detergent my clothes are washed in. I don't know what the answer is, but I do think I get stung more than other people. So where was I going with this? Look, only time, patience, wisdom, practice helps you get through some of these scenarios and you develop a certain finesse around bees. And so Sharon and I talked about it, and hopefully I could get her to get back on the horse and go out and try this again. Otherwise, my bees are going to be hungry. So, so Dan, how long have I been going? I think we're at about an hour now. Okay. I typically wrap these up about an hour, hour, hour and, and a half. So we probably should start winding down. Got any other questions for me? Haven't seen any other ones come in. I see Big Ryan B. says, Randy Oliver gives some advice in handling and approaching hives and certain mannerisms that you might not think about. New York Bee Wellness YouTube channel has some of those talks. So there it is. Perfect example, right? We talk about a topic and somebody comes in and goes, hey, here's something you might want to know about that. That's what's cool about Discord <laughs> and, the, and being a part of the community. And the good news that I like about Discord is no trolls, right? I just can't stand know-it-alls. I can't stand people who have nothing nice to say. People here in the Discord channels are always very helpful. They're funny. They're friendly. It's been a different tone in this environment, so I've really enjoyed participating in the Discord that, that got us on the journey here tonight. So one of the things I've heard I'll share, um, when you walk up to a hive, you should present yourself to the hive. You should come up and bow, as silly as that sounds. No, just get in the field of view and get yourself um, in front of the bees so that they know you're there. And one of the other things, and I've talked about this on the podcast before, you could put a flag or something that moves because the bees are responding to something that moves. They don't have a great field of vision, but they can detect movement. And if you're the only thing moving, then possibly they perceive you as a threat, which is an interesting idea, right? So, yes, there are uh, some advice in handling and approaching hives. You know, common wisdom come from the back. Uh, on that idea, I saw something really cool the other day. I wanted to mention this. It's kind of like roundtable topics for this episode. A sideways hive. Sideways hive. Let me tell you what that is. It's a hive that sits on the bottom board, but the opening is out the side. The opening is not out of the short end. It's open on the long end. It's a specially designed bottom board and box that allows the bees to enter out of the... So why would you do that? The answer is when you approach the hive, you can work the hive 
by pulling the frames out from the back of the hive and it actually works. You have to think about how the hive works. Most of the time when you grab your frames, you grab the long ears and you pull them out parallel to you. In order to do that, you have to stand on the, the long side of the hive. If you stand at the back of the hive and the hive is situated the other way, it, it works differently. You can be around the other side. I know I needed a picture for this. I had one somewhere, but I don't have it right now. So, yeah, I thought that was a really cool idea. Like, you know, next summer, maybe we design a special hive and go, what's different about this hive? Take a look at that. Oh, <laughs> it's sideways. I thought that was ingenious. It's all these little simple things that, that crack me up. I think that's pretty funny. Yeah, Gary from Kiwi Mana says, stop drinking banana shakes. I said in an episode not too long ago, if you listen to it, it was the coolest sound bite ever where the dog was being chased by a bee and ran past me in the driveway. That I smelled the pheromone, the, the alarm scent from the bees. It smelled like bananas or it reminded me of, and I, I still can't figure out what it was. This little candy we used to get when I was a kid in the Little League Baseball. Used to buy those little hard candies. They, they were like um, almost like saltwater taffy, and it, and it had a banana smell to them. That's what it was. So over the last couple weeks, while I've been working my bees, since I now know what that scent is, I smell it all the time. Never smelled it. Now I, I get it all the time when I get pheromone. So... Pretty cool. Ryan B says, don't bathe in lemongrass soap. Yeah, not a good idea. <laughs> lemongrass is a stand-in for, for bee pheromone. Don't want to be doing that. Daniel said, what always comes up is, what do I think of the the flow hive? I, I don't have an objection to the flow hive. If if that's what gets you into beekeeping, then good. I only hope that you're a good beekeeper and that uh, you get your value out of it. I said on a recent podcast that someone gave up on the one that they have and uh, has contributed it to me, and I'm going to put it in use next season and see how I make out with it. So that that's an interesting idea. What happens with the flow hive? I just commented recently on a podcast that I don't see a lot of information about people having great success with them. Seems awful quiet, like crickets. Big John says to Ryan about the lemongrass soap, it's a good way to get a bee beard. <laughs> lemongrass aftershave. If you saw the uh, promotion thing here from... From this, you'll see me with the bee beard. That was neat experience. If you've never had a chance, bee beards are really neat. I wanted to reach back here and grab the New Jersey Beekeepers Association calendar. They have what you're supposed to do every month. Ah, yeah, it reminds me of a funny topic. Let's close with this one. I was in my garage getting prepped to take the honey boxes off. When I realized that, you know, I have a bee escape board. I bought one one time with always the intention of using it. And I said, I'm going to use this thing. So on the gateway hive, 
I had three three supers on that box. It was a three D five and three honey supers and it's sitting on top of a grain scale and it's high. I need a ladder. So I got the bright idea that I was gonna use a bee escape. So I got on the ladder and I picked the first box up and it had to weigh a hundred pounds. The thing was just wall to wall honey all the way through. But I grunted, lifted it off, put it down, lifted the next one off, put it down, lifted the next one off, put it down, put the bee escape, and then put them back. Two days I left them to escape. And then I got to thinking to myself as I was driving home saying, I'm going to take this thing off. How did I put that on there? Did I put it on the right way? No. (laughs) I didn't. I put it upside down. That goes to show you, right? Never used a piece of equipment. What would I know? What a stupid thing to do. So I had to schlep those really heavy boxes off again. I was so mad at myself. And when I took the the boxes off, I broke some honey and it was spilled all over and the bees were going crazy out in the apiary. Really bad. (laughs) So I didn't get a chance to use it, but now I know how to place it. So I had it upside down and the bees were all stuck in the honey chamber. They were not going down into the hive. So what I ended up doing was two things. I used my fume board, which worked great. I know a lot of people don't. There's there's three primary ways that I know of. You could blow the bees out with a blower. Make sure you use the right kind. You can fume board using something like Fisher's Be Quick or other products. Or you can use an escape board. And last but not least, you could certainly take each of the frames off, shake the bees off, brush them off brush is not brush wait kevin moment i learned this and i try to say this every time so that people know because if you keep repeating it more and more people will know it when you use a bee brush do not brush do not brush because you're dragging the bee across and they don't like that makes them angry flick take your bee brush and flick the bees off they're okay with that don't brush like sweep across So you could flick the bees off after you shake them off. So I set the box down on my ladder device that I made, my stand, and I put the Bico on my fume board and exited them out. And that stuff works great. I've used it multiple times. It smells terrible. Smells terrible. When Even when you bring it back to the garage afterwards and you leave it sit outside to try and dry out, and it, for days you walk up and go, oh, that stuff smells bad. Butric acid or whatever it is. Fisher's Be Quick is supposed to be great. Smells like maraschino cherries. That's not what I have. I had some other thing that I bought before I knew it. Not harmful to the bees, but smells really gross. Yeah. The right kind of blower, the question is, because I made that statement. You want to make sure you have no exhaust in the stream. Because wax will soak up um, the chemicals from it. So there's certain blowers that are electric and uh, certain ones that you can buy for commercial guys that have the blower separate from the motor and make sure that they don't get fumes into the box as they're blowing. You'd be surprised how good, you know, 
let's just say that the normal leaf blower, the one that I have out, 32C, <laughs> it's got exhaust in the stream. But recently I bought Sharon a battery-powered one. That one would work well. If it's strong enough to blow the bees out, that's the way to go. So fume board work good. Skateboard, make sure you use it the right way. So on a skateboard, the escape board has a flat side with a hole with a screen. That goes up. That's what I learned. And I wasn't thinking, right? I was so in the moment just trying to get done with doing those honey boxes. I did it one night after work in the dark. Bees were nasty. Fully suited. 100 degrees. And, uh, yeah, learned my lesson. So here I am on the cusp of thinking I can go be a master beekeeper and I don't have to use a skateboard. <laughs> That's kind of funny, I think. <laughs> if you can't laugh at yourself, who can you laugh at? <laughs> so, Danny, anything else? <laughs> yeah, so LKB on YouTube says, I've had really good luck with a fume board and honey bandit. Um, and we did get one more question on Reddit. Level 10 Kobold says, bees are amazing creatures, and the guy across the street keeps bees. What are good plans to put in my garden so they come visit? And then my own addition to that is, what can a non-beekeeper do to help bees? Yeah, so, you know, it depends on where you're at. One of the best things you could do for any of your beekeeping buddies is plant forage that goes all year long. Look, the spring is not a big deal because there's plenty of everything anywhere you are. But when you get to this time of year, July, August, September, especially here in New Jersey and in other places, not a lot of forage out there. So if you want to plant something to make your friends happy as beekeepers, first thing I'd say, and this, this advice came from Jim McCauley, it was great. It's great to plant all kinds of beekeeping-friendly plants. But if you plant one locust tree, you'll feed a billion bees. And the tree will be there every year. So if you have the ability to plant certain trees that are great forage, especially in off times, plant a tree. If you want to do something just basic, let your grass grow in the spring until the dandelion get to fluffy and then cut it just before fluffy so you don't. Well, you know what? I like fluffy because when you do fluffy and the stuff flies all over, you get more dandelions, which means more food. But... Uh, on the internet, if you look up pollinator-friendly plants, you can find tons of resources. Tons. Xerces Society is a great place to look. And they'll tell you wherever you are, what zone you're in. Uh, you could also check for a master beekeeper. Or, I'm sorry, a master gardener. And they have recommendations. So there's tons and tons of information out there about pollinator plants that you can plant. And, um, you know, there's discussion about different plants, and there's almost a, a ritual that they have to be native versus invasives and all that other stuff. So when you're trying to help pollinators, pick the plants that are native first. Be a good doobie about that. Uh, I wanted to follow up on one thing and maybe think, Dan, about um, the seed packets that I had and the clover that I planted. The clover came in, although nothing flowered yet, but I think every year that should come back. But the seed packets for the wildflowers that I planted didn't come through. I was kind of disappointed by that. 
I'm not sure why I'm not a gardener. I just put them in the soil and hope they would work. It has rained enough, so I thought they'd get enough rain. I got one, one last one just came in on Reddit. Seton uh, posted, how do you become a master beekeeper? I live in New Jersey, too. And you kind of addressed this earlier, but I figured you might want to give it another quick shot. I think one of the first things, if you want to be a master beekeeper, is be a beekeeper. Be a beekeeper for a period of years. I'm I'm fortunate that I know enough uh, people in the beekeeping community through this podcast, of course, that... Uh, I've been exposed to all facets. I've interviewed guys that make mead. I've sat and worked with people who build products of the hives, wax and honey production, things like that. I've developed uh, enough of a connection with the state apiarist and other influential beekeepers throughout the state. I've met commercial guys and been in some commercial operations. These are the type of things that they would look for for somebody from a master beekeeper. So the first thing I would say is, Get in the system. Get in, meet people, go to meetings, invite yourself to certain things if you can, and uh, get exposed to a wide array of beekeeping topics because you need to be well-versed. Eastern Apiculture Society has a website. They run a conference every year. The physical mechanics of becoming a master beekeeper, you go to their page, and they have multiple things on there about what it takes they tell you where to look for study guides. They tell you which books to buy. Dewey Karen's book. Dewey's instrumental in the program. Um, as I look here to my left, I have about eight or other books that I've been using as reference. I would recommend the Penn State Guide for Disease and Pest Control as a, a resource for everybody, not just beekeepers. So um, learn which, which uh, books and other information you should study. And um, uh, hopefully I answered the question, but, but that's about it. The other thing that I would say is there are a handful of master beekeepers, and I did go seek some counsel from Landy Simone and, and some others just asking for general tips of what I should do to get prepared. So, so I don't know if, uh, John, you're in the channel here. You've been quiet, and that's okay. I just wanted to know if you wanted to say hello. And say anything about the Discord channel. Um, not sure if your microphone is muted. You don't have to. Just figured I'd give you a chance if you wanted to say something. Yeah, it's working. That's yeah, fine. So I started this Discord about three months ago, and it sort of had a big surge after the first month or so. And so at the minute, I'm just trying to really foster a community over here, hence why I've started this sort of live question and answer situation yeah and i suppose i could have done a better job john you're the moderator key person for apiarists beekeepers and uh i, I don't know where are you located i don't even know i'm in uh, the north of england so quite a while away it's like half three in the morning right now for me wow. so i didn't know that <laughs> I have to be a bit quiet i kind of assumed you were from england but it never dawned on me uh, what time it was for you uh, it's quite late, and everyone's asleep, so I have to be a bit quiet, unfortunately. Okay, well, you know what? For all the work that you do, I just wanted you to get a chance to say hello, and, and thank you uh, personally for what you're doing here. I think you're doing a great job. Um, I, I've really enjoyed the, the commentary, and 
you know, Ryan B. and Jay Case and others in here who answer questions and share a lot of their beekeeping experiences. It's a lot of fun. Uh, I see things pop up on my phone while I'm at work. I sit in meetings and I see a Discord pop up. And also uh, come home every night and just kind of peek in. And and uh, it's a neat connection to be connected to others. And I wanted to say thanks for putting this all together for us. Yeah, well, thanks for doing the podcast. My pleasure. So uh, I guess, uh, Dan, thanks for running interference on the questions. Appreciate that. What time is it for you in Seattle? Just hit 7.35 out here, so not quite as late. Oh, very good. So we have we have Europe, uh, Eastern U.S. and Western U.S. represented here. I want to say thanks to everybody who jumped in, asked questions. Appreciate your participating. We'll look to see if we could do this again sometimes. This is the first opportunity as you hear Dan and, and uh, John talk as beekeepers, listen to this when we do it in the future. If you join Discord and you have a microphone, we can literally drag you in and just talk one-on-one directly, and you can ask your questions and go that route. So uh, maybe we'll look to see if we could do a couple more of these this year. And as we do, we can literally bring in listeners and have them ask live Q&A. So that's really cool. All right, well, look, I guess it's time to sign off. I'm not sure what my schedule is going to be over the next couple of weeks for putting out episodes, but I was happy to get a chance to get behind the microphone and get this one in place. And uh, hopefully I'll be back soon. I would like to do some live posting from EAS when I'm out there starting July 29th or that week time frame. Um, so we'll see how that goes. Yeah, fun times. Got to take care of the bees before we go out to EAS. So hopefully we'll find enough time to get everything buttoned up before we head down to Newark for uh, hopefully a successful run at Master Beekeepers. But now it's time to sign off, and we do it in our own special way. Like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, we accomplish great things. See you, everybody. Thanks for listening. Have a good day.